we doing? What's the anniversary? You're asking why are we here right now? Yeah. We take a guess. Why do you think we're here? <laughs> I want to know what you think <laughs> is happening right now. It's a, some sort of milestone. Yeah. It's a big milestone. But you're not sure which one it is. It could be 100 episodes. I, it's definitely, it might not, be it's 10 definitely years. more than 100 episodes. I think it's 10 years. Is that possible? I, I'm asking myself that. Amanda Sidrin. Leah Sidrin. Back by popular demand. It's been I a mean, long time. The people want to know where you've been. I've been busy. Okay, so it's 10 years. Your podcast is almost as old as our child. 10 years is so long. It doesn't feel like 10 years when you're doing a thing every week. You don't really feel time passing because you're you're just in there chopping away at it. Well, but, that's why the comparison to our child is such a good measure of time because mm. nothing measures time like watching a child grow. That's true. And even when you're in that, you don't really see it yourself. But then you see somebody that you haven't seen with your kid for like two years and their jaws drop on the floor and they can't believe how much has changed. So by that measure, yeah, the world has changed. Are you kidding me? We've been through so much in the last The world years. has changed enormously. And it is actually really a beautiful sort of byproduct of this project that looking back, I think if one cared to, they would see how the world has changed. You know, how many little pieces of our daily life have been transformed in the last decade, even though the experience of living, of living an artful life, of being a musician or being a yoga teacher or, or being somebody out here just trying to make something happen is essentially the same. But it is kind of amazing to have done something, just recorded something for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, you have a physical record of it. I went back and I talked to Will Lee. Your first interview. My first ever episode for this 10-year anniversary. And after we're done talking, I'm going to play some of that interview that I did with Will. But you know, when I called Will to come over originally, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And? I still don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but people seem to think that I do now. I think that's the biggest change. I don't think I know what I'm doing, but I think people now think that I know what I'm doing. Well, isn't that what we're all trying to do is just get people to think that we know what we're doing? You know, when... I walk off stage with my dad still, and especially if it's with my dad and Billy Peterson, who, you know, they've been playing together since the mid-70s. I've been playing with them since I was a boy. You know what we say to each other? Fooled them again. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> Fake it even when you're, even when when you're, you're making, making it. <laughs> Do you feel that way as a yoga teacher? All the time. I think if you didn't have a little imposter, if you said you didn't have a little imposter syndrome in you, mm -hmm. or a lot, mm -hmm. you'd be lying. I feel that way. I feel anybody who says they don't have it, don't trust that person. Yeah, because who knows everything? I'll tell you. Nobody. If I've been doing this for 10 years, that means you've been a yoga teacher for 10 years. Yes. Because we each chose a thing to do for ourselves. Yes. And you decided to pursue your interest in yoga and get your first of now what have become multiple trainings and certifications and credentials. And I decided that I was going to call Willie and have him come over and talk to me. <laughs> Mine was less official than yours. I wouldn't say that. And look look at us 10 years later. How, These are the things that stuck. Yeah, we did some other things too. And other things stuck too. I mean, yeah. we had a child. That's still happening. <laughs> I started making records. I've made a lot in the last 10 years. That's true. We chose to stay in New York. We did. There was a question of whether or not that would happen, at least from one of us. I won't say which. You've never questioned it? It's not that I haven't questioned it. 
It's that I still don't want to leave. We are two self-employed people. We pay so much money for health insurance. We're two self-employed people. We'd pay the same amount for health insurance anywhere we lived. I actually don't know if that's true, and I want to invite my listeners in other states. <laughs> Please weigh in on whether, where we should live our life based we, on the cost of health insurance. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be curious to know that. Thank you. This is a tricky place to live. We are here trying our best to make it work, and we're doing it. You and I had a conversation recently where you said we're unquestionably happier as people because we focus on the things that we're passionate about and that we care about. Yes. I do. I believe that. Do you not believe that? Oh, no, I totally believe that. <laughs> and you know that because I have had the opportunity to at least try to get a job every now and then, and I hijack it at every turn. Yeah. I make it so difficult for anybody to hire me, and I demand crazy things because I think that the freedom and the privilege of getting to do the work that I really care about is so important. I agree. And that's why we've always said whenever you've had a job present itself to you, ask for the moon. Yeah. And if they want to give it to you, then that's the job for you. And yeah. if they don't, then you're happy doing what you do. And how many people get to say that? Hopefully a lot. I hope a lot of people get to say that. I don't know what other people go through. I mean, that's the interesting thing is I'm so far along this path at 47 years old of never really having had a proper job. I mean, I've had gigs, I guess, kind of extended gigs, but I never had that. I have no idea what a normal person's life with a normal, as if anybody's normal, what somebody who has a job who wakes up and goes to a job and this is what they, I don't know where fulfillment comes from <laughs> if that's how your life is structured. Yeah, but I don't think, I mean, even saying that somebody has a job, that's that's such a different thing for every person. You do have a job. I have a career. You have a career. You don't have a job. I guess that's what it is. But jobs come in so many different shapes and sizes. And at the end of the day, what is fulfilling to you? And do you get to be fulfilled by the work that you do? Or are you just punching the clock? And then there's the other piece of it, which, interestingly, I don't know that I've even had this version of the conversation over the course of the hundreds of episodes that I've done with people, the conversation that explores those days when, even though you may have chosen to follow your passion or your passions and to do the things that are meaningful to you, there are days when it's much harder to do them than other days. There are sure. days, I'm sure, for you when you have to show up and teach when you would prefer not to be teaching at that moment. It's true. They're few and far between, but they arise. In the sort of the general scope of things, that doesn't happen to you very often. It doesn't. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I consider myself lucky. And you too. So tell me, 10 years in, who would you still like to have that you haven't had? Oh, I'm not going to say that. You're not going to put it out there into the universe? The first thing is, I wish I, I had done my homework and I could find that piece of paper that I wrote the initial list on. There was a list and there were a bunch of names on it. Ani DeFranco was definitely on it. Donald Fagan was definitely on it. I mean, I'm sure John Schofield was on that list. I have not talked to him. Mm. I'm sure Nora Jones was on that list. I have not talked to her. I'm sure John Bryan was on the list. I have not talked to him. I'm sure Fiona Apple was on that list. I haven't talked to her. I bet Brad Maldow was on that list. I bet Paul Simon was on that list or Billy Joel or John Mayer or Leslie Feist or, or Quincy Jones. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> or Mark Ronson or Niall Rogers or Michelle Indigio Cello or... Yuval Harari. <laughs> I mean, we could come up with all kinds of people. I could go on and on. But in the meantime, many of the people were on that list. Ani was on that list and, yeah. and Fagan was on that list. 
and Ron Sexsmith and Duncan Sheik and Chris Potter and Christian McBride. I'm sure they were all on the list. And Jonathan Brook was on that list. And people that were meaningful to me were on that list. I mean, not necessarily because they were famous. Some were more famous than others, but because they just spoke so deeply to my heart at some moment of my life. But the interesting thing about the project has been, over time, not just excavating things that I loved in the past, it's also given me the opportunity to continue to fall in love. It's given me permission to continue to fall in love. It's given me a way to navigate, a way to move through the world, and a way to mark the passage of time to celebrate milestones, not just this anniversary today, but also to process elections and the loss of loved ones and to celebrate work that's been made, to talk about the work that I make, to talk about the work that my dad makes, to describe my surroundings as I travel. I, I think as a learner, as a student, am somebody who, while I love to learn, I also love to be motivated to learn. I love to have a reason. It was always harder for me to practice an instrument in the abstract than it was for me to practice for a gig and learn a tune that I have to play on a gig. It was always harder for me to read a book just because I want to read it than it was for me to read it because I need to write an essay about it or it's part of some project that I'm doing. You know I struggle with this stuff. So like what keeps me fresh and listening to new music is the idea that maybe something is going to excite me enough that I'm going to want to talk to the person who made it. What keeps me reading books? Yeah. The possibility that I might talk to the author. The author, yeah. That's true. And you have. I've presented you with some books. You found some books. You tracked down the authors and you've spoken to so them. So it's a mode of transportation for me. I mean, the, the podcast is a way of traveling, which is why I think it's probably not more successful in its way. You're not going for the big get. You're following the path that you're on. And I legitimately can't do it if I'm not actually and authentically curious about the person. Mm. I mean, fortunately, I tend to be pretty authentically curious about most people. You can be authentically curious with just about anybody. It's a, it's a. Uh... Go ahead and say it. <laughs> Whatever you're gonna say. No, I'm it's here. I was gonna. Say, it's a magical thing about oh, you. Oh. I don't have. I don't ever have to worry about taking you to a party and making you know wondering if you're sitting in the corner not speaking to anyone. I think that my sort of my social technique is somewhat similar to my interviewing technique, which is to try to get a read on the person I'm talking to and figure out where we might align, what experience I've had that might align with the person. I agree. And I think that's what makes your interviews so compelling, because it's not just a list of questions that you're asking and receiving the answers. It is a true conversation. And you come at it from that personal perspective. I think it helps the, helps draw people out. Do you feel any sense of relief that I brought this into our life, this project? Because before I started doing this, I was just constantly trying to go deeper and deeper into your psyche. <laughs> you have not stopped that just because you started a podcast 10 years ago. But I guess it did alleviate some of your need that you can dig into someone else's psyche and not just to mine. It must be so boring for you to continue to try to dig into my psyche after all these years. But you still surprise me, though. So there's still work to be done there, I think. Wait till you see what I've got next. <laughs> But it is true that there's a part of me that thrives on, this is a funny word for me to use with you, but the seduction of meeting somebody new, of finding that common ground with somebody and figuring out where we can get together in the little short time that we have. Yeah. What's it like for you watching me do this? I mean, this is like I'm constantly, constantly Yeah, editing. I mean, it doesn't phase me anymore. It's been happening for so long. The, the constant um, editing of the conversations, the 
repeating of the lines to remove every uh, uh, eh, um, and sniff. Uh, I think AI is going to take care of that moving forward. It's going to help, I think. For your sake, I hope that's true. Yeah. For people who make their living as editors, I hope they find other things to edit. Yeah. I don't know what I would have hoped for with this thing when it started. I'm not even sure what I said I wanted from this, other than that I wanted to try to make it. And the truth is that I am so focused on making it, and I'm so focused on whatever the next episode is going to be, that I haven't been particularly strategic about the marketing aspect of it or whatever. I much more enjoy making it than I do marketing it. Well, I think that's probably one of the reasons that people like it so much, is that it is your labor of love. But you did win a Signal Award. You've yeah. partnered with WBGO. Yes. So I became a journalist. Work. I mean, to the extent that I am chronicling the things around me through either songs or conversations, maybe I am a journalist. And now that I'm on the radio, it's looking more and more like that may be the case. I guess that's what I was getting at when I said I don't know what I would have necessarily identified as my goal 10 years ago and if this is it or not. But it certainly has been a fun ride. I mean, why does it have to be a goal? Why can't it just evolve? I think about that. Sometimes you see a goal on the horizon and you just go directly towards it. Yeah. Some people are like that. Other people are more like they see the next step. And once they get to that step, they see the next one, the next one. They look back and they go, well, how did this happen? How did I get to this place? I would have never predicted that this would be the place that I would have gotten. And I kind of feel like that's where I am. Yeah, I can see that. Which is why I think the compass is just, does it light me up? Is it interesting to me? That's the kind of the only way I know how to make the next move. And I'm 10 years in and feeling like I'm actually just getting good at it now. Well, Leo, congratulations on the very first part of this journey. Ah, wow. <laughs> Amanda Sidron, I would like you here more often. I know you're busy. People love it. Wait till you see the bags of mail that we get, fan mail for you. You know what they say, always leave them wanting more. Yeah, I know. But I don't seem to follow that. My episodes are long. And uh, <laughs> since we started 10 years ago with Will Lee coming over to our house so generously and talking about what he was up to. I thought it would be fun to go to his house and follow up 10 years later. I have, of course, seen him in the time in between intervening time. intervening time. But, you know, since that first conversation that I had with him, uh, a lot has changed for him. He was still on TV every night in the band on The Late Show with David Letterman back then. Of course, that's no longer on the air. So his life has changed. His Beatle band, the Fab Faux was also a major part of his life 10 years ago, and it continues to be, but he told me how things are evolving on that front as well. So it was interesting to check in with him after a decade and see what's the same and what has changed. Last month, I went to his place in Manhattan and caught up with him. We talked about some of the new music he's been putting out. As a matter of fact, he just put out a new single last week called It's All Too Much, and it is all too much. When I look into your eyes, your love is I'd like to just ask you a question, though, Amanda. What are the uh, famous links and places that people should go 
if they're you know interested in hearing the archive, like going back and hearing episode number one. Where would they go? Thirdstory.com. It's still not true, <laughs> damn it. It's third-story.com. Was that a joke? Third-story. Third-story.com. That's all you need to know. Because I think there may be going to be some changes. For, for now, the Patreon is still active. Also, WBGO, of course, wbgo.org slash studios. I guess I, I should be just encouraging you to subscribe on your podcast app. Leave a review. Wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, wherever that is. Leave stars. Five stars. Request Amanda more often. If you speak loudly enough, I think your voice will be heard. Oh, great listener. We shall see. Also, if you want to know more about Amanda, you can visit amandasidranyoga.com to find out all about her exciting work. Here's me and Will Lee talking Talking it down. Thank you for having me to your home. I've never been here. It's absolutely fantastic. Full of light and life. Oh, we didn't rehearse here. We rehearsed somewhere else when we did our songwriter That's right. We rehearsed thing. at somebody yeah. else's house. Right, at Ann Klein's. But this is a total joyful place. I can feel that it designed. Let me take you later into the, into the real mess, which is my Beatles Museum, the oh studio that I call the Beatles Museum. Why do you call so, it the Beatles Museum? You'll see. Okay. Everything. Because <laughs> you're going to go, uh-oh. Nerd alert, and uh, probably want to flee as fast as possible. I don't think I would ever say nerd alert about you, but I'm glad that we start by talking about the Beatles Museum because, Will, I have to acknowledge that it's 10 years since I started this podcast. You were episode one. You generously came over to my house just based on some far-flung concept that I had that I wanted to start interviewing people, and you, you didn't question it. You just went with it. And you gave me a sense of possibility and permission that I could do this. And it launched a big part of my life. Not only is it the 10th anniversary of my podcast, but I now realize in thinking about your life that it's the 60th anniversary. We're coming up on the 60th anniversary of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Yeah, first of all, uh, I can't believe that was your first uh, podcast. You were already so good at it. And the second thing I want to say is, now you tell me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I thought did, we were in the middle of a, of a whole series of I didn't of tell stuff. you you were number one? I don't remember, but it didn't feel like it because it felt like you were so prepared. Yeah. And uh, it, as every subsequent podcast that I've ever heard you do seems to have all of that. So much has actually happened in the last 10 years for you. When we did that conversation, you the show was still happening. That's you right. Know, so everything in your career was still kind of orbiting around that schedule and that organization that you had to adhere to. Right, yeah. So a lot of things have changed for you since then. Absolutely, yeah. Another big change that I have kind of consciously made since then was I loved doing the show, Yeah, of course. The show was really a treat. And being a fan of David Letterman's and not only getting to see him do his thing every day, which was just like a, a guy sitting at home at his TV set watching, you know, one of his favorite personalities in action. We were at the Ed Sullivan Theater, speaking of the Beatles. So it was kind of like a holy cathedral of love and, you know, inspiration all in one place. But the thing about doing the show was, of course, as you alluded to, is that you got to stay in town. You know, you can't really wander. And I always love a great variety of, of things to do. I was being called for all kinds of stuff that I couldn't do. I wasn't going to be the guy that left the show. Huh. I wasn't going to be that guy because it was too much of a gift horse. And I just, 
I loved everybody that I was playing with every day at the show. But honestly, you really had to be anchored down in New York City all the time. And um, once that ended, um, when Dave made the announcement, I, I felt like quiet sigh of relief that I didn't have to be that guy. But I was also, uh, you know, looking to readdress all the open doors around me. And then there was Fab Faux, the Fab Faux, which was pretty much tied up almost every weekend, you know, of the year, kind of, basically. I mean, there were a couple of off seasons, but generally speaking, I was turning, still turning down tons of stuff that I really wanted to do. Yeah. So the, the Fab Faux is now sort of operating on a little bit more limited basis. So we're taking more choice type gigs, I, I guess you could say. Due to what exactly? Well, due to, um, I guess, my desire to express that thing that I needed to go out and do that I, that I had to be held back from yeah. for all those years, you know? Yeah. You know, you say that it was a quiet sigh of relief in a way that, you know, you weren't going to be the one to end it, but when it ended, it was sort of like, okay, well, now I can start to explore other things. Yeah. And maybe you still get the benefit of this. I wonder if being associated with that show for so long and just being on TV every night for 30 odd years, if you felt any loss of persona or loss of who you were when the show went off the air? Not really, because I had already been a kind of an established um, jack of many trades in the industry, yeah. not only in America, but elsewhere too, where they didn't see the show. Right, you know? they didn't so even know. They kind of helped me keep my varied soul intact, yeah. you know, by reminding me over and over again, I'm such a big fan of this and I love that yeah. and, and remember this and, you know, those kind of things that, yeah. you know, stuff from the jazz world, stuff from the rock world, yeah. stuff from, you know, other types of music that I'd been involved with, especially recording studio wise, you know, yeah. on record. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it originally and, you know, it really is astounding to think you describe being held back in some ways from being able to travel or do the kinds of some of the projects that you want to do. Meanwhile, you somehow managed to squeeze in all this incredible work around the show or squeeze the show in around all this other rec incredible recording work. I mean, I can't imagine anybody who could have squeezed more juice out of that than you. Well, there were certain types of recordings that you could still do, but there were also certain producers that had just lost patience with a guy who's who thought he was going to come in on a, on a project and yeah. leave for a four hour hold during yeah. the middle of the session and waltz back in. Yeah. You know, that took a lot of patience from, from most producers and really the last and most patient holdout was, was probably a reef Martin yeah. who was really so sweet about that. But then he finally broke down and said, I can't do this anymore. I need somebody who can hang all day. I mean, I remember that, like, you know, my dad produced a small handful of records that you were on in the nineties and they were made at night like that Georgie Fame record, Cool Cat Blues, and you'd come in at night after the show was over. That That's was the other great option. Great yeah. example of which producers were willing to do a thing. Let me give you some good advice Don't get caught in the same trap twice Every little thing that you do Big Brother is watching you When the show finally ended, one 
aspect of the world that had changed, though, was that the session scene had really slowed down. So that wasn't the thing that you were going to go back to because there aren't the kinds of sessions today that there might have been 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, today's types of sessions, and there are many still for me, luckily, I get to do it sort of on my own schedule. So that's really great because I'm doing a lot of overdubbing at home, you know, and putting bass parts down, vocal stuff sometimes. And uh, it's a great schedule, and I love doing that. I love having the freedom to obsess over a part. Yeah, right, in your own time. Yeah. Sessions still exist in a certain kind of flavor, but not in that New York, you know, hopping from studio to studio style. It's an interesting distinction, and I have to say, I can see how you excel at both versions of it, just knowing what I know about you, in the sense that I think you spent so much time doing that sort of one and done, you know, walk into this studio, you don't know what you're going to play, it's over before you know it, and you don't have time to obsess over it. But then I also have seen you in contexts where you, you know, you do want to polish it and refine it. And so getting to do it in, you know, in your own time probably allows you to bring out that sort of side of yourself. Yeah, it's good and it's bad, you know. Because yeah. there is a certain something that happens to your brain when you have to do it. Yeah, I guess it goes along with the same concept that deadlines are great for musicians totally. and creative people because somehow you magically get it done within the framework. Right, and without labels and you know without anybody clamoring for you to deliver your record by June first or whatever it is, those deadlines go away too, and we, you know, we start to nitpick at our stuff. Yeah, and we also start to take a lot of breaks. Yeah, right. <laughs> Between the nitpicking. So you you have been doing remote session stuff, and is that what you sort of leaned into when the show ended, or was that more during COVID that that started to happen more? Well, during COVID, there was a lot more being thrown at me as far as that's concerned, because everybody had time to be creative and to come up with projects yeah. for, for people to, to work on, you yeah. know? I mean, I worked on just incredible things. I mean, things with, like, just everybody, Bob James or... An Elvis impersonator or, you know, just <laughs> just all kinds of different, you know, like, yeah. I think I worked on like 40 projects, 40 album projects during COVID. And, your, and is that when you started to make your latest solo project as well? I was, no, I was piecemealing yeah. ideas the whole time, you know, yeah. and, um, and I still am always, but my dream is to finish some things, you know, because there's so many things started. And uh, which one is entertaining me at this moment? And which one do I do I think doesn't suck because I had a chance to get away from it? Or which one do I absolutely abhor because I thought I thought it was really happening at the moment? But then you go back to what did I even mean by that? You know, of course, there's a lot of that. Oh man! But I love trying to see something to the end. If if you can get the time and if you yeah. can get the focus. It's the greatest feeling in the world to finally finish a, a, a dang song. You haven't put, I don't know if the intention is eventually these will be on a record, but right now they're coming out as singles. You're just popping out these singles. Yeah. Well, I was feeling so damn shitty. I left my home in the city. I drove so fast. I never called to say Run, 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 run away. 
I feel like, you know, the funny thing about like these days is mm -hmm. that, you know, everybody on this floor of this apartment yeah. building that we're in has an album out practically yeah 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 yeah. you know maybe somebody downstairs maybe somebody next well, door probably a lot of the people in this building have garage band yeah, let's sure. say start there and then yeah. a lot of people aspire to do what we do yeah and that is play music or write songs yeah. you know and many people really have a great time doing that you know and i'm not talking i'm not judging anything about yeah. quality that doesn't matter but the, the important thing is the important thing is that people are enjoying themselves doing music you know Many, many, many people are, are, have access to something that never was even dreamed about like 25 years ago, you know? It's a huge revolution in what it means to make a record. You know, you told me in episode one, you said, you know, the electric bass was a new instrument when you started playing yeah, it. Yeah, that's like, true. There weren't schools to study electric bass. There weren't a lot of electric bass players. We've come so far in a lifetime where now everybody's got GarageBand and they're making records. You were like on this burgeoning studio scene where records got made in a certain way and now that's completely changed. Yeah, and it's really kind of cool because that's just where music went and is going and you work within that framework. It was a struggle to get a product out before, yeah. you know. So, you know, now the only, the only danger of like this ability to make music so easily is hopefully the cream rises to the top and it's not all just because of hype aside from the hype part of it i've tried to get my like i've, I've incorporated out these days a social media team actually mm -hmm. that i actually pay because i think it's crazy and it's sad if you're gonna make some music or any kind of art and the people that really would like to see it don't even know about it you know so the, the purpose of me getting a, a social media team is just because, you know, not that I want to hard sell anything to anybody, but I would love for the people that, that want to know to have the opportunity to, to know that it, it exists, you know, so they get a little nudge. Yeah. You know, it's not like pressure nudge. It's just like, you know, sign up for my newsletter or whatever, and you'll get to know about the thing, yeah. you know? It seems like maybe one of the transformations in the last decade is this switch from waiting to get the call only to get you know to be the guy that somebody is thinking of for their project to being more proactive about your projects and making sure that people are aware of what you're putting out there and, and focusing on yeah well with the time that i do have in between working for other people that's <laughs> the hard part is to try yeah. to find those moments to actually focus on your own thing because because there's plenty of stuff going on gig wise there's a lot of really really great records being made and i just came back from germany and we did a beautiful trio record with Steve Gadd and this great uh, keyboard player, Simon Oslinder, who's a yep. 25-year-old amazing musician. Yep. Just like those kinds of things are going on. How is it for you to be playing with Gadd after all these years? What is it like for you to be with him? Steve Gadd, the human, is the real experience that you get to have when you, when you do something with him. Because the playing is something other otherworldly in itself because... There's a swing factor there that has developed since we first started playing a long time ago that has become a thing where he's hitting the drums softer and he's getting more sound out of the, mm -hmm. of the drums as a result of that. Mm -hmm. But there's also, there's this amazing swing factor that, that is going on all the time that it's, it's indescribable. It's, it's not something you could, you could ever replicate or quantize or hmm. there's no name for it 
It's just a thing. Yeah. You know? So that in between takes, of course, the hang is priceless. Yeah. Because he's just like the greatest, sweetest, warmest, funniest guy. Yeah. You know, we just have a ball. Yeah, it's interesting that, that he's playing softer. Do you feel that he's playing softer across the kit? Is his right foot soft too? Everything is getting softer? Well, you know, I think the intensity level, there's a tacit intensity level. Yeah. It's not a pounding intensity level. It's intense, you know, especially when it needs to be. Yeah. And that's kind of the wonderful thing about seeing a Steve Gadd performance yeah. is that you're watching a guy simmer for most of the time. Yeah. But man, when he throws down some some powerful, like a, yeah. even if it's a fill or if it's one of his trademark solos, yeah. then it really, really means something. Yeah. And it's just like the greatest payoff. Yeah. It's like a simmering thing that all of a sudden just erupts and you want to just jump out of your seat because it's so exciting. Do you think your approach to the bass has evolved or changed? Do you think people that are playing with you today would be able to say something akin to he's playing soft? You know, not that you're playing softer, but do you think it's changed in I any notable say. way? I have no idea. All I know is it's. I feel the same every time I walk into a new situation as, yeah. as ever. I'm scared. Yeah, really. I'm hoping I'll do good for the music, and it's one note at a time. You know, that's how I live my life. I love it. The old twelve-step program. One note at a time. Yes. And you got 12 notes to deal with. 12 <laughs> steps right. and 12 notes. I mean, we, when we did that gig last year or a couple of years ago, I remember how prepared you were. And I remember saying to you after the gig. Excuse me. Let me just interrupt yeah. and say, prepared, that's Latin for scared. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting to. Bitter end gig, pretty low stakes, maybe 50 people in the room. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I don't know, maybe there were more, but... You know, you were very diligent about le learning my little songs and making sure that it was right. And, and I said to you afterwards, this must be the secret to getting all these calls and why people want to work with you, that you're so, you, you know, you're so on top of the shit. And you said, no, man, it's just, I, this is who I am. I need this to feel comfortable going on stage. Yeah, but look who's talking, man. Everybody was there for each other. Yes. You know, you were amazingly there for everybody. We were all there for Ann Klein's material. Yes. We all studied Rob Arthur's material yes. and each other's, you know. And you really bailed me out because I walked in thinking I was going to be able to play bass and sing at the same time on that song, Hey Shorty. Yes, I know. Sorry, I couldn't do it at all. But man, you completely rallied and saved the day. You say you got yourself a little halo that you wear on top of your head. This way nobody asks any questions outside the door people just wait around to see if you're okay and you say wait a minute i'm looking through my damn collection but no matter how you hide you're still angry all the time Better pull up before you crash and burn. I want you to learn. Bragging rights. I told you I'll do it for the bragging rights to get to play bass on <laughs> you your song. It. Yeah. But all, all that is to say, I, I learned about you that you are nervous still after all these years. We're all nervous still after all. Even you, even the greatest, even the people with all. Well, you don't want to of... screw up in front of the people that you really admire. Right. You know? you know, for all of us, music is really our boss. That's That's right. That's all. 
reserving the music. I suppose part of the reason I was so impressed by that is because I've also seen you do the music direction on these epic concerts at the Beacon for God's Love, Love yeah. where it's like, I don't know, 50 songs or 30 songs. I don't know how many songs you have to get 30 through. 30 sounds like pretty, pretty average, yeah. It's just unbelievable. They're just, they go on and on with, you know, supporting the greatest artists and the bands are kicking and you're the MD on these things. And I just thought, thought, how do you even get that together? You just prepare. I mean, I've been working on next year's already for weeks, you know, and uh, it is really a four hour music festival, that yeah. thing. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts. And the greatest thing about it is we have... Um, and and you have to have this to make it work. We have the greatest hand-picked sections of yeah. six horns, six great singers, yeah. amazing horn section, and a ridiculous rhythm section. And everybody in the band, and when I say band, I, I call it the uh, the Love Rocks Orchestra, the yeah. Safety in Numbers Orchestra. Mm -hmm. It's so big. <laughs> yeah. If you look around at everybody on that stage, you see people who are themselves MDs. That's right artists in their own right, band leaders. They're all band leaders. They all have their own, so they know what the deal is, you know? And the amount of respect that's going from person to person on that stage is not only in the band, it's also in the artists when they come and hear what we've done for them mm -hmm. to make their bed, you know? Yeah. They walk in and they kind of like, you know, after the first run through, they're on their knees bowing kind of thing. And that's, that's our goal is to make them go back hating their own bands. Yeah. Right, go back and say, <laughs> Why well, can't you be more like those guys? Something that's come up over the years is the idea of, one way of thinking about it is the empathy that comes from having the experience of being on the other side. So for example, all the people in the band have had the experience of leading a band. And right. so they have a sense of what a, the band leader might be looking for or needing and what would be the most supportive thing to do in that moment. Yeah, There's some real value in just having played as many roles as possible yeah, in the how process. fortunate is that position to be in? And I do have to say that I've watched Paul Schaefer yeah. uh, navigate just personality after personality, putting together, for instance, not only stuff for the Letterman show, while playing in the band, while listening to the assistant director in his earpiece, while you know, uh, kibitzing with Dave. I've watched this guy navigate like for another great example is uh the, those rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremonies that yeah. we did year after year yeah where he would put together a jam yeah not only did prepare the music that was the, the the prepared music for the night but there used to be a genuine spontaneous jam where paul would go during breaks out into the room go from table to table this is like a banquet uh yeah. sort of setup at the waldorf astoria the all the the first couple of decades of that event and ask Keith Richards, hey, would you come up and play with us at, at the end? You know, hey, Eric Clapton, would you, you know, hey, John Lee Hooker can, you know. <laughs> and next thing you know, at the end of the night, we'd never rehearse this stuff, but yeah. we would play together and it would be Paul Schaefer that everybody would be focusing on. And he had a way of just getting everybody's attention because everybody needed to know what to do, right? Somebody's got to be in charge. Yeah. I mean, the, and, and musically, it was kind of unbelievably amazing. Yeah. The only thing that was that was rough about it uh, probably was was the poor sound guy, you know, trying to do front of house and not knowing who's in what mic and all that stuff. But yeah. otherwise, musically, it was kind of miraculous. Would the musicians just pick up instruments on the stage, or would they yeah. have maybe they would? Yeah, there would be like a bunch of rented stuff, you know. I remember one scene where we were doing um, 
something. I believe Bonnie Raitt and John Lee Hooker were up front doing something. We couldn't see them or hear them. Mm-hmm. Before we started playing the song, John Entwistle came back by the base station. It was mm-hmm. an extra setup for me. I, what I had was, I think at the time, I had a hard key uh, speaker bottom base cabinet and a, a GK uh, amp head. And there was, a, there was a duplicate of that. And when I saw John Edwistle coming up, I thought, oh man, this is not what he's used to playing in. You know, he's not gonna, no, he's not gonna know what to do. You know, it's gonna feel weird. And, and I watched him pick up a second Sadowski bass, yeah. which is what I play and yeah. which is what there was a duplicate of, picks it up, starts twiddling a few knobs and played a couple of notes and it was instant John Entwistle. Yeah. It sounded just like you wanted him to sound. He yeah. just dialed it right in. And then uh, he couldn't see John Lee Hooker or Paul Bonnie. Schaefer or the Bonnie Raitt either. So Debbie Gibson had, had hopped up on Paul Schaefer's riser and was he's down in the room like giving signals to everybody in cues and you know give him the three yeah. f- three fingers four fingers for the four chord yeah. five fingers for the five chord that kind of stuff and debbie gibson is down looking at him she can see him from her vantage point at the high riser that she's up on looking down at john entwistle giving him those signals and it was really funny to see J- debbie gibson so debbie's conducting the translator john <laughs> But because Schaaf was so good at being an, a musical director, anything I could possibly have, have succeeded in being able to do in that realm comes directly from my experience with him. You know, you tell that story about playing gear, backline stuff that isn't their usual instrument and sounding like themselves. I do, how much of your sound do you think comes from the equipment and, and how much of it is in your body and your hands? I think by this time, because of what I use and how it developed because of my comments to my Mm-hmm. bass maker Roger Sadowski yep. those kinds of sounds are pretty specific to me I think at this point because we started together with, with the whole idea of having a preamp in an instrument that was something that gave a bass player a real edge over over the regular basses that were happening at the time the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of passive you yeah. know fenders and stuff like that when the preamp got introduced that enabled you to be have more everything more more volume more more highs, more lows, so you could really stick out in a, in a track when yeah. you were doing a recording, you know? And was that something that you were feeling in sessions? I really could use this, this other well, gear yes, to go we, to. Well, yes, it was a competitive thing, and we all wanted to have some kind of edge, you know? It's really an excuse for me not being any good, but we'll talk about that later. I mean, Lee Sklar's got the opposite on his bass, right? He's got, <laughs> He's a, got a, a producer knob. That yeah. does nothing. That does absolutely nothing. <laughs> People say, could you make it a little more yellow? And he says, no problem, he turns the knob. <laughs> yes. Classic, and, and you went the other way. You said, "Okay, I'm going to have a, an actual sonic." Yeah, thing I want to blow people away. Yeah, so let's see what, what we can do to make it even more amazing. You know, the story of also being on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and not being able to hear what's going on reminds me of another story that I I was loosely a part of, which was that you were at a recording session after the show ended. You were more available, and we got you to come out to my house for a couple of days to make a record with my dad. How much fun was that? Such a gas. Oh. I can't believe I convinced you to come over to my... I remember we made... everything about that. You do? Oh, yeah. Home recording. It was a home, total home and recording would, record. And you would never know it. It, it did come out Especially good. Especially because Ben... Yeah. How did he do that? He was playing and singing at the same time, and those were the takes. Now when you're dying on the platform from the heat and the smoke, and the skinny girl from Teaneck thinks it's all some kind of joke, you're waiting on the G train and the AC is broke, you say, thank God for the F train. 
thank God for the F train. We finished the session. You had one thing left to do, do a backing vocal overdub. Fortunately, we had finished all the bass tracking. And while you're in the middle of doing this backing vocal overdub, you get a text message. Can you, I want you to tell, fill in the story from here. <laughs> okay, whatever, this is how I yeah, remember it. Yeah. So we're, we're finishing up the last couple of lyrics on the background. Yep. We're all standing around the mic, and yep. my phone is buzzing. Yeah. And I look at it, and it's Tony Bennett's son, yeah. Danny, who was yeah. his manager yep. at the time. Can you be at Radio City in an hour yeah. to play Sir Duke with Stevie Wonder? The band can't cut it. The band we hired can't cut it. Yeah. So I said, you know, if you send me a car, I can definitely be be there. Yeah. In other words, I needed the car because I'd never really physically played all Sir of Duke. Sir Duke before, you know. So I had a chance to be in a back seat with some room to to shed on my way up there, and we came and kind of saved the day. I, they asked me if you, if I would get a drummer, and I thought of just the perfect drummer for that, and yeah. they were completely thrilled, you know. And they had to backline you tuxedos yes i didn't know this the gig was was going down yeah i wasn't called for it you yeah know? so i walk into radio city to see an entire orchestra of all the a horn yeah. players and string players and harpists and all yeah. that stuff and percussionists in new york on stage in tuxes with tom scott up front conducting and i thought wow i didn't even know about this this is this is like a wonderland of you know musicians and i walk up you know a stevie wonderland Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And I remember you told me after the fact that because it was so rushed that Ugh. you actually didn't hear yourself yeah. as it was going I down. made a big mistake. I got there and I was trying to be like Mr. Like no maintenance. Yeah. That was too nice. And I said, look, I don't really need an amp. Just put me through the, the, the monitor system. Yeah. And, that, and you know, that's how we rehearsed it. And it was perfect. But when it came time for showtime, we got up on stage and there was no bass signal coming through the monitors. I nobody's was standing nearby that I could get their attention to tell the engineer to please turn me up, turn me on in the monitors. So I ended up playing the whole Stevie set with no, no bass coming back at me except for later that same week from the audience, you know, from, right. the, from the house the slap back coming back way after I had already played the note. And it was just uh, so hard. And it's a TV show, right? A TV special, an album, <laughs> you know, and it sounds great. You know, thank God I'd I'd played music before. Yeah. This is my first venture into uh doing this I, 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 would, I would have had nothing you know that's not a nightmare scenario exactly but do you have any other of those kind of gig disasters only in my dreams these days i have these weird recurring nightmares of coming to and of course the letterman show ended years ago but i i still have these dreams once in a while where i'm like we're the show has gone on the road we're in a strange building with like you have to take two separate elevator banks to get to the dressing room, which is a temporary setup. So I'm going, I go up there to try to get, get my clothes together for the gig. Everybody's already gone. They've already headed to the stage. I'm, I'm walking in the dressing room, I'm throwing my clothes on, and then now I get lost trying to find my way to the stage. And by the time I get to the stage, the show's already in progress, and I'm like, just mortified. I, I still have those kind of... It's a little spinal tappy. It's a little Hello Cleveland trying to get find your way to the stage, <laughs> it you know? It is. 
That's the, my life is like spinal tap. Yeah. Kind of. Our lives are like our lives tap. are like spinal tap. Let's talk a little bit about COVID because you went out of New York. You know, when I talked to you ten years ago, you said I people think about retiring to some island or some far off place, and you don't want to retire anywhere outside of New York. You told me ten years ago, New York is the place for me. It is the ultimate. It's the ultimate. I mean, okay, you can go to say the south of France, and, for example, and be in a, in a beautiful in the most beautiful village in all of. Europe. And you do spend time in the South Africa, to be clear. You, this right. is something that you do. So I'm talking from experience. Yeah. And you can, on a daily basis, have the best croissant yeah. you've ever enjoyed. And then you can follow that up with just the most amazing cheese yeah. and, the most, and the most gorgeous olives. Yeah. And the next day, you can have the greatest croissant you ever had and just fantastic yeah. cheese and <laughs> olives. more olives. <laughs> yeah. olives. You know, I'm from Texas originally. Yeah. I want some Mexican food once in a while. A little spice. You want a Good little luck spice in, yeah. in the south of France, yeah. for example. So, yeah. you know, if you have a hankering for Japanese food or, or Indian food, it's just not going to happen. But in a place like New York, you can just get on your computer yeah. and start dialing it up. And next thing you know, it's at your doorstep. You yeah. know, in that way, New York is like, you know, and because of the diversity and because of the, the proximity to everything. Yeah. That, that was what was so great about the New York studio scene. Yeah. You could do five to eight sessions a day. You, L.A., most of that time would be spent driving, so yeah. you'd be lucky to get fit like two in. Yeah. You know? What do you hope? I mean, you told me before we started rolling that age doesn't really matter to I you. I don't do age. You man. don't do, I don't do it, man. I don't do age, man. <laughs> no, I really don't think about that because I don't think about, it just doesn't really make any difference to me about how old anybody is. Like, how, how does it feel to be with that person? You yeah. Know? And how, you know, how are they, how is their happiness level? And so in your own life, as you, I mean, I understand that you don't do age, but, you know, age is a reality on some level. Do you think about like how you, things that you want to do and not do as you look at the rest of your life? I just want to finish these, these songs. hundred songs. <laughs> these songs. That are, that are gnawing away at my brain every yeah. day. That's pretty much my focus is like, and I and, and the, but when I say finish songs, here's yeah. my method of, of doing anything. Yeah, it's like there's a lot of there's a big stove with yeah. about seventeen pots on it. Yeah, and every time you get bored with stirring one of them, you can just close the lid and go to the next one. And that's what I do a lot. I I really l allow myself every bit of five seconds to focus on any one thing, and I'm like kind of like a bee. Is that good? No, we're making a it's terrible. It's the worst. That's why nothing ever gets finished. But I'm entertained all the time. Never bored. Because you just keep move on to the next pot and move on to the next pot. I think I'm getting stuck. And I think I need to get away from it to come back with, to approach it in a surprised kind of way. You know, I think I need distance to really judge. I personally am a notorious procrastinator. But the way I procrastinate is by doing something else, which is why I look productive. So while I'm putting off doing it. the thing that I'm supposed to do, that's when I make my podcast. But when I've committed to delivering my podcast, that's when I uh, the song comes. But when I've told myself I need to record the song, that's when I go and write the jingle. You know what I mean? It's like I'm always putting off this other thing. And so things get done. And I don't know if it's healthy and I don't know if I can change, but that's my process. And it sounds like you have a somewhat similar process. I do. I, I just like it to be exciting whenever you, whatever you're doing. Yeah. You know, I like yeah. it to be fun and, and holding your attention. I just had an, a question for you because you have a dog. I do. Yeah. An old dog, very old dog. Do you 
personally take it for walks. I was 15 minutes late to you today because I do the afternoon walk. It's your duty today. And as okay. she gets older, it's slower. And man, it is every time I take her for a walk. You know, she's 15 years old and she's slow and I'm late to see you. You know, I mean, I, I left enough time, but it didn't Boy, accommodate. here we go with the old blame it on the yeah. dog. Yeah, <laughs> the dog we ate, all know about that Dog one. ate my Metro card. <laughs> I left. You almost made me do a spit take. I, I, I wish I had, we were doing video. <laughs> it forced me to lock in with her time frame. Like she's walking slow. Right. So I'm walking slow. Okay, my next question. Yeah. Because I had a dog, yeah, and she was getting old too. Yeah, I found that there was something about being in service to that dog that I don't know how this works in the human brain. Yeah, but I got my best song ideas while that was happening. I don't know what that is. What is that? Is that a thing that you've you've ever experienced? Like. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm completely stealing from my daughter and my dog. I mean, those are probably the two biggest. But my, I guess my mind would would wander. I wasn't writing based on anything that the dog was doing. Yeah, you were just being around the dog. But somehow it gave my my brain a certain freedom. Yeah. I wasn't doing anything else but waiting for the dog to finish doing whatever, yeah. snooping around. Yeah. And... While the snooping was happening and the walking and the whatever, yeah, I was being of, of service to this to this hound dog, yeah, and I had always wished I had make sure I had something to record into because my ideas would these ideas would come hmm. just out so of you nowhere. think it's dog specific. You're not necessarily ex- well. That's, that's extrapolating it to the next level of like no. You could be taking your turtle for a swim, yeah. <laughs> and the same thing would happen. Still an animal. I mean, the question is, can you get there without the animal? Maybe do we need the animal? Maybe that's why we have pets. You know, maybe that's why we do have pets. Because yes, I want to go back to something that we said earlier. Tell me, my life is like a Spinal Tap moment. I, I liked. I just, just like that phrase. You think that's what it is? I love the phrase. I want to. I want to write a song about that. Because it's really a fodder for a great amount of uh, little examples and I'm sure you've scenarios. got a million of them. Or you know, I just saw, by the way, on social media that they're making another one. Yes, I saw it too. With well, I saw Sir Elton John is going to be in it, and, and I don't know Sir who else. Paul McCartney and Sir Paul McCartney. Oh, good. This will bring us home. We're going to land this plane right now. Okay, Sir Paul McCartney, personal friend of mine. No, I'm just kidding. But kind of. Well, there is definitely an acquaintanceship happening there. For sure. Your life has been in many ways marked by the Beatles, and it's not an insignificant thing. I mean, when we first talked, you really focused in on seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Of course, many lives were changed by that moment, yours among them. Uh, You then spent a good part of your life walking into that same theater and playing on the show, so there was a kind of a connection to that, a personal physical connection to that sacred space. You have a band that is a Beatles cover band. I shouldn't say cover band because it's more than a cover band, but it's it's a Beatles band. You've unlocked and unpacked that music. You are a what do Beatles experts call themselves? Beatle Beatleist. Beatleist, maybe. You're a Beatleist. I mean, you've really thought a lot about how those things are put together, and you've played with all four Beatles at some time in your life. And on top of it, you actually have a relationship. Like you have a relationship with Paul. He knows you. He knows your love for the music. He knows your respect for it. I've admitted all of the above. You've had a chance to say it to him. I don't even have a question. I just going to state all those things to you and let you kind of uh, answer that. Well, I have to say that 
you know, when the Beatles first came on the scene, it was such a welcome uh, entity, you know, musically, attitude-wise, fashion-wise, just excitement-wise. And the first thing I heard from those guys was, it's hard to imagine that there was actually life before the Beatles, unless you were there when it happened. I was a kid growing up in Huntsville, Texas, 70 miles north of Houston, Texas. There was a little a radio station called KSAM, and it was an AM station that was named after Sam Houston. <laughs> KSAM. And uh, listening to, to the radio, and, and everything that was coming on the radio was kind of like, okay, you know, pretty good and nice and things and music and okay. But then when I Want to Hold Your Hand came on the radio, it was so different than anything else that was happening prior to that moment of, of that broadcast of that song. I want to hold your hand. 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 You weren't even sure if you liked it at first because it was really that different. And that's, that's the thing that's hard to imagine is that now since the river has has gone from from a straight flowing direction to a now off way off to the other direction because of that one band that we take so much for granted now that it it really is hard to imagine what it was like before but it was so different and when the beatles came on the radio the more you heard it the more you liked it and the better it got and the more you got sucked into this amazing vortex of like positivity and and wonder that these four guys who had the the lucky streak of of getting to meet each other and be together to make this unbelievable new sound was just like something that it's hard to imagine it ever happening again. I mean, Taylor Swift is out there killing it, and she's fantastic, and and her she's a wonder. But these are four people who actually converged in a way that you just haven't seen since. You know, and I don't know if it can happen again. I, I think it is interesting to remember that, that there's a before and an after just in, in popular music. Yeah, I mean, I actually did an AI search when I first heard about ChatGPT. Yeah. The first thing I used it for, well, one thing I used it for was to write a, re- a letter of recommendation for somebody who was yeah. trying to get a co-op in yeah. the city. And it was unbelievable. Yeah. It really worked. So <laughs> the other thing that I used it for was I said, I worded it in, a such, in such a way that it came back with really great results. I yeah. said, uh, make a list of, in essence, yeah. Beatle firsts. Uh-huh. And man, the things that those guys did first was something that happens every day now yeah. that had never happened before them. Yeah. For instance, drum risers. Hmm. Flanging. Yeah. You know, that was a product of John Lennon not being really able to, in a timely way, compete with Mr. Perfect, Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. who could double his vocals just breath for breath yeah. in, in the studio. And John Lennon wanted to do it but just didn't want to bother with how long it took to do it so he asked the engineers is there something you can do and flanging was began because flanging of course means an engineer dragging his hand over the tape flange which is the top of the tape as it's going around Mm -hmm. in a random way to make it sort of sound like a natural you know as as the other vocals playing back kind of a double it's recording into this new machine and that machine the speed is kind of going up and down so it almost sounds like somebody doing an imperfect it's not like a parallel 
delay kind of doubling. It's a real random kind of sound. So the tape flange, you know, it became a verb. Yeah, flanging. Flanger. I got a new flanger. Or or a noun, another kind of noun, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that was like, there's just tons of Beatle firsts. If you ever want to be fascinated by what you didn't know that happened first that we all take for granted now, just do a search like that. And it's just, wow, yeah. First band to have everybody in the band sing a lead vocal. Obviously, first band to have its own cartoon show. You just it just goes on and on and on. But it's very short lived. I mean, it's incredible when you think back on how short it was. I mean, they came Amazing. and went in the space of time that my podcast has been going. For example, right? I mean, this is ten years I've been doing the podcast. How long were I they? I think together? you've outlived. I out- my podcast has outlived the yes. length of time. They revolutionized everything. I'm still here. Here's to another ten, man. Let's yeah. clink microphones. All right, man. Willie, thank you, man. Thank you for being my um, first and my anniversary. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. I can't believe that we're doing this again. It's so great. Well, we'll do it in another 10. Okay. All right, man. (laughs) There he was, my friends. Willie. I don't know what to say except happy anniversary to all of us. I'll be back again in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then, say it with me. I'll talk to you soon. Well, I just woke up from a crazy dream. I had to laugh and smile. Sweet Mademoiselle's rolling down the This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.